Three, two, one. Welcome to the Sighting Sisters Podcast, officiated by your humble high heretics, Little Wolfbird and Blue Lemons. Be warned, curse words and sensitive topics lie ahead, dear novices, so headphones over your shrouds are recommended. Take heed, for in here you shall find all the spoilery secrets within the Order of the Silent Sisters in the House of the Stranger Wives. Welcome back to the Silent Sisters podcast for episode three. This episode is our second installment of a three-part series dedicated to mom and dad, a.k.a. Ned and Kat. Originally, we intended for just one episode for our favorite parents, but after pushing back recording numerous times, it made sense to break the analysis into three parts, Ned, Kat, and their marriage. After all, we were pretty sure we were going to put a lot of people off if the first content episode was more than three or four hours long. Yeah, that's a bit too much to ask. Just to recap, in episode two, entitled The Wounded Heart Beneath the Solemn Face, we covered Ned Stark's childhood and teen years through Robert's Rebellion and stopped at his return to Winterfell. We also went really deep into speculating on Ashara Dane and her alleged relationship with Ned, whether it be a friendship or a romance. We described how her character might weave into what we know of Hall, Rhaegar and Lyanna, and what role she might play in Ned keeping his promises to his sister. We also proposed that Robert Baratheon is the strongest candidate for the man that dishonored Ashara at Hall because, why not? He's a character that has shown a consistent pattern of that exact type of behavior with women over his entire teenage and adult life. He's definitely made some astonishing dick moves as a brother, both to Stannis at his wedding and to his foster brother Ned when he pleaded for Lady's life. He was notoriously unfaithful to Lyanna throughout their betrothal, even partaking of all the girls at a brothel when he believed the supposed love of his life was being held captive and raped. We don't see why Lyanna's presence at Heron Hall would magically change him into a devoted fiancé who would abstain from other women out of respect for her. When has Robert ever abstained from satisfying himself for any reason? So, so that means he should be seriously considered as someone who could do a shara dirty like that. And we explained why he makes sense when you put it all together in the context of Ned and Ashara's stories. I do need to jump in here and point out that later in the evening on the day that we published episode two, I was listening to History of Westeros. I can't recall which episode it was, but it was one of their fairly recent ones. Anyways, Aziz, beautiful, wonderful, amazing Aziz, made mention of the tourney of Hall and Ashara Dane. I don't remember what the context was, but to paraphrase his comment, he said that Brandon is the only logical choice to have been the one to have dishonored Ashara. Again, I don't remember the context, but the sentiment and the comment was clear. And I, I just wanted to scream, Aziz, Aziz, go listen to our podcast. Brandon is not the logical choice. He's the obvious one, but not the most likely. It's not Brandon. Oh, hashtag justice for Brandon. <laughs> Seriously, though, I admire your tremendous restraint in not immediately banging out a totally deranged sounding email in defense of our fictional sex positive Northern Stud Muffin. You, my dear, are a stronger woman than I. <laughs> yeah. Ha. 
have made a comment on their Discord server where I did at Aziz, but no one has ever replied to that. So the moment passed, the explosive passion and flailing lament receded from me and I, I'm okay now, but in the moment it was, it was quite overwhelming. <laughs> Still, it was a valiant effort. Good thing we don't have to hide our crazy over here on our own podcast. <laughs> Absolutely not. I thought it was pretty poignant that the old gods and the stranger had me listen to their podcast right after publishing the episode where we made a strong case, at least in our opinion, that Brandon was not the dishonorer, dishonorer, the, the one who dishonored her. It sure is a small world, especially when that world only has five canon books to refer to. <laughs> so very true. We've actually done more talking about Robert's characterization since the last episode, and we feel we can elaborate a lot further on our Shara Dane Hall theory. However, we're going to table that for now until we do our episode on Robert and Cersei. Uh, I wish we could just launch into that right now. I know, I do too. It's a very juicy topic, but saving it is really going to best serve the Robert and Cersei episode. Very true. That should be the next one to drop, by the way, after we get done with part three of the Ned and Cat series. The plan right now is to cover the three marriages of the Rebellion generation that are of paramount importance to kicking off the plot of the series. Ned and Kat, Robert and Cersei, and John and Lysa Aaron. So, in conclusion, Aziz, and we're just going to pretend now that Aziz is part of our audience, because let's just have our fantasy. Aziz, with much love and respect, maybe check out episode two and give Bobby B a teeny weeny little look-see, you know? Brandon was, at worst, cringy and horny as a young man. Yeah, a single description of a braggy high school freshman exaggerating his prowess to impress a girl doesn't feel like an open and shut case to me. A thing definitely not unheard of from boys of that age. Definitely not unheard of. I can definitely smell the Axe body spray just wafting Ugh. off the page Ugh. where Babs talks about Brandon's bloody sword. And he did break things off with Babs right after he found out his father had sealed the betrothal with Catelyn, showing that it would be dishonorable to keep seeing her when it would never lead to marriage between them. We're just saying. We're just saying. God, I hope we're freaking wrong about this, though, because it's one of those things you hope is not true for Ashara's sake, because it would just be awful for her on top of... Don't you remember? Ashara is alive and well in the neck, married to Helen Reed with two kids, and she's totally fine. Remember? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. That was close for a minute there. I was about to get really sad again. She's fine, folks. She's fine. It's fine. Just out there having a frog-tastic day in the swamps and definitely not dead. Definitely not dead. So, Little Wolfbird, with that out of the way, how do you think our first content episode went? Other than us constantly flubbing every single one of our lines for three hours straight of recording and making a mountain of work for me to cobble together in the form of a decent episode, and not to mention trying to edit out my pug Lucy for snoring loudly in the background... I think if you listen closely for the first 30 minutes or so while you're talking, she, you can hear her snoring. <laughs> hey, there is only so much magic I can do. Other than that, I think episode two went really well. Same, same. Besides our inability to read and speak at the same time, I was really happy with how it came together. Great job with the editing, by the way. It was nothing short of magical. Thank you. And in all seriousness, it felt like we found a groove right away with the topic and we were just throwing all of our excitement and passion into it. 
We probably spent way more time talking about Brandon, Ashara Dane, and Robert Baratheon than Ned Stark, but it was a risk worth taking in my opinion. I definitely don't believe Ashara's story is only loosely tethered to the Stark side of the events leading up to the rebellion. They are most likely intrinsically related. At least that's our gut feeling here at the Silent Sisters. Absolutely. Everything during that time period shapes the man Ned became when he returned home to his wife and son. Harrenhal, the war, and the Tower of Joy, and the costly cover-up to protect John are the most pivotal moment in Ned's late teens. So much of his own innocence was lost, and he's left feeling unprepared as a second son, and like an imposter taking on the role of the Lord of Winterfell. Sure, he lost his father, a brother, a sister, a bunch of close friends, perhaps even a first love, all within about a year, and all by very horrible means. At the same time, Ned married a veritable stranger that was betrothed to his dead brother and fathered a child by her on the first go-around, a child he might never have met had he been killed during the rebellion. He saw the senseless massacre of innocence with Elia and her children. Their murderers were allowed to walk free with Robert's sleeve. As a result, they had a huge blow-up. Then he swore to protect his sister's child from his best friend at a great cost to himself and people he cares for. So the lies he told and the secrets he kept are the same things that prevented him from being able to process a lot of his trauma. It's no wonder he goes home a weary, broken man with survivor's guilt and imposter syndrome on top of everything else. But we'll get to all of that in part three. How about we read some opinions and feedback from the listeners now? Yes. So Lo the Links on Twitter said, I just finished listening to this episode and I gotta say, it's absolutely brilliant. At the Blue Lemon Tea and at Little Wolf Per keep bringing great analysis. I especially love the analysis of the romances going on at the tourney of Harrenhal and it really brought some new perspectives. Thank you, Lo. You rock. You totally rock, Lo. Love your analysis and commentary as well. This means a lot coming from you. Thank you ever so much. Pat Lawful Good Spinagle tweeted, The Silent Sisters episode was fantastic. I appreciated this deep read of the Harrenhal tourney. Would recommend. And we would recommend you, Pat Lawful Good Spinagle, as a human being for being so awesome and kind. Thank you. 10 out of 10. Thank you, Pat. Our dearest Vermilion Sunrise commented on Discord, Great episode, and the nod to Sandor at the beginning made me all goosebumpy. I do hope this is the way for him in the story. Sigh. Thank you, and we 100% agree. Vermilion Sunrise feeds us so well with her sans fix. We highly recommend checking her out on AO3. Just make sure there are no nosy looky-loos around you that you wouldn't want seeing your screen, if you know what I mean. She's an amazing writer, guys. Very talented. Thank you, lovely. Zach the North tweeted, Really enjoyed this episode, despite being caught way too far inside my feelings as you two broke down and theorized all the tragedy of Ned and Ashar. Can't wait to have my heart torn out about Kat next time. Hard same, Zach. We were so up in our feelings thinking about Ashar and Ned until we were left gutted like a fish. Cored like an apple. Zach, because you left such a lovely comment, we promise we are going to do our very best to destroy your heart every chance we can. Mortal combat fatality your heart and then stop all over it we are coming for your feels zach all of them (laughs) but thank you zach for the comment (laughs) yes thank you zach (laughs) and just when our self-esteem couldn't get any higher and our skin any clearer amy blackfire comes in with a shout out calling us fun smart and engaging amy oh my god my heart i was not prepared (laughs) we were oh absolutely not prepared for such kindness and support from someone who does podcasts and youtube's 
all over the place. Thank you so much, Amy, for the signal boosting us to your followers. Yes, thank you, thank you. That means a lot. Thanks to everyone for your comments and feedbacks. We appreciate you so much. Wow, I'm feeling really good about that. Yeah, I'm ready to punch this episode in the face. Fuck yeah, (laughs) let's do it then, Blue. Catelyn was born in 264 or 265 AC at Riverrun to the Lord of the Riverlands, Hoster Tolly, and his wife, Manissa, of the Harrenhal Wentz. Remember last episode when we said nothing is known about Lyara Stark, Ned's mother? Well, we do get to know a little bit more about Manissa as a person. But not much. But not much. When Catelyn is having a dark moment of despair and goes to the Sept to pray, she begins to think of her own mother as a source of comfort. Smoke was making her eyes burn. She rubbed at them with the peels of her scarred hands. When she looked up at the mother again, it was her own mother she saw. Lady Manissa Tully had died in childbed, trying to give Lord Hoster a second son. The baby had perished with her, and afterwards some of the life had gone out of father. She was always so calm, Catelyn thought, remembering her mother's soft hands, her warm smile. If she had lived, how different our lives might have been. She wondered what Lady Manissa would make of her eldest daughter kneeling here before her. I have come so many thousands of leagues, and for what? What have I served? I have lost my daughters. Rob does not want me, and Bren Rickon must surely think me a cold and unnatural mother. I was not even with Ned when he died. Her head swam, and the steps seemed to move around her. The shadows swayed and shifted, furtive animals racing across the cracked white walls. Catelyn had not eaten today. Perhaps that had been unwise. She told herself that there had been no time, but the truth was that food had lost its savor in a world without Ned. When they took his head off, they killed me too. Catelyn Four, A Clash of Kings. It just goes to show for a lot of people, no matter how old you are, there's that yearning to be comforted by your mom. The loss of her mother had a major impact on the whole family, that things might have been different had she lived. We'll get into what she probably means by that later, but we can say that Manissa was a gentle, loving presence gone far too soon for Kat. It's also said that Catelyn resembles her mother in her high cheekbones and jaw, something that she passed down to her daughter Sansa. We don't know how Manissa Went is related to the Wents of Harrenhal, especially Lady Shella Went, the last of the main family line, who is mentioned often throughout the published novels. Yeah, we just want to say a few things about the Went side of Catelyn's family because it's not often talked about. Now, Georgia said Lady Shella Went was married to Lord Walter Went during a fan Q&A. Walt and Shella are the parents of the unnamed Fair Maid, who was dubbed the Queen of Love and Beauty at the start of the tourney at Harrenhal before Prince Rhaegar won the joust and passed the crown to Lyanna Stark. So, in other words, Shella and Walter were the hosts of the Harrenhal tourney, which was held to honor their maiden daughter. The same total Dramageddon event that set everyone on the trajectory towards Robert's Rebellion. Correct. It's also mentioned in the Little Cranach Meng story that Walter and Shella had four unnamed sons who jousted to defend their sister's crown. They both seem to be Wentz by birth, so they are most likely cousins. And you have to put two little factoids together to make that educated guess. Obviously, Walter is a Went by birth because he has a brother, Oswell Went. More about him later. It's also mentioned in an Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings that Harrenhal Smith, Ben Blackthumb, worked for Lady Went's father and grandfather, suggesting Shella is not only a Went by birth, but also 
the heir in direct line to her father's seat. Of course, cousin marriage is perfectly fine in Westeros. But like we said, we have no idea how Manissa was related to the ruling branch of the family. Perhaps they were all cousins, or perhaps Manissa was a sister to one of them, which would make Catelyn even closer to the Harrenhal once than we thought. Perhaps Walter and Shella even had a hand in arranging the marriage between Manissa and the Lord of the Riverlands, Hoster Tully. That would make sense if Lady Shella and Lord Walter, as the heads of the family, would be involved in betrothing a suitable Wint girl to their liege lord. That's kind of a huge deal for them. When Catelyn thinks of Lady Wendt, she doesn't say my aunt or my cousin, but it's not weird that she refers to her by her formal title either, even if it seems a little distant in familiarity. Catelyn does at least feel a strong enough tie to House Wendt to appeal to the men wearing their house sigil first at the Inn of the Crossroads when she makes her move to arrest Tyrion Lannister. She could hear the muttering, feel the eyes upon her. Catelyn glanced around the room at the faces of the knights and sworn swords and took a deep breath to slow the frantic beating of her heart. Did she dare take the risk? There's no time to think it through. Only the moment and the sound of her own voice ringing in her ears. You, in the corner, she said to an older man she had not noticed until now. Is that the black bat of Harrenhal I see embroidered on your surcoat, sir? The man got to his feet. It is, my lady. And his lady went a true and honest friend to my father, Lord Hossertoli of Riverrun. She is, the man replied stoutly. Catelyn Five, A Game of Thrones. It's kind of cute that she's out there trying to get to the bottom of who arranged the cat spa to kill Bran, and she calls upon a Batman to help her fight crime. Ba-na-na-na-na-na, Batman! <laughs> George does love him some Batman. Sadly, we've never met Lady Shella, who is currently an old woman, through any point of view. As we said, she's the last living member of the Went line, so obviously her unnamed daughter and all four of her sons died without producing any heirs. Damn, she does keep getting brought up, though. She does. Yorin, the Night's Watch recruiter that escorts Jon to the Wall and smuggles Arya out of King's Landing after Ned's beheading, calls Shella a longtime friend of the Watch. Interestingly enough, Yorin may have been present at the Tourney of Hall feast, too. In Miria Reed's retelling, the little Cranog man notes a black brother speaking at the feast, asking knights to join the Night's Watch. So Yorin and Shella might go way back. Hey, you know what? What? I totally went to check and see if there was already a Yorin slash Shella went ship tag on AO3, but there wasn't one. There really should be, I think. I'd ship them. Let's totally ship them. It's official. We're shipping them, guys. Stinky Lyserin Yorin just dropping by Hall every year to partake of the hospitality and to give old lady Went the Lord's kiss. Stop! Stop, 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 stop! <laughs> what? She's a very good friend of the watch, little wolf bird. You said you would ship this with me, you coward. I will, but leave the fan fiction to my podfic project. Coward. Mm, whatever. Moving on. Shella is also one of the nobles called to King's Landing to swear fealty to King Joffrey and Sansa V of Game of Thrones, even though Shella has already yielded Harrenhal up to the Lannister forces during the War of the Five Kings because she was unable to defend the castle with her small number of men. Shella fled her home and her whereabouts remain unknown. Though Littlefinger reports the rumor of her death in A Feast for Crows, there's no details on where, when, or the manner of her death. It's very possible she's still alive and in hiding from the Iron Throne. Having rumors spread of her death would help throw off anyone searching for her. Not saying she's secretly some other random quirky side character or worse, a faceless man. Just that she might have traveled incognito and is laying low for her own safety. That's all. 
I promise we're really trying not to drift too far off topic here, but Shella is an interesting person. We thought she was worth mentioning because while she might very well be dead, it is possible she is one of the last surviving members of Kat's maternal side of the family. Okay, technically, there's Winifrey Went, who is currently married to Walter Frey's eighth son, but honestly, who gives a flying shit about that? Anyways, Shella is way cooler, has more backstory, refused to come to King's Landing and bent the knee, went on the run from the law instead, and maybe faked her own death. That should come to some kind of interesting revelation, right? I would think so. Plus, if she's still alive and we finally get to meet her on page, she might offer up more insight on the tourney of Harrenhal as she was not only a witness, but a co-organizer and host. Speaking of Harrenhal, there's another notable Went involved. As we mentioned in briefly before, Sir Oswell Went of King Eris II's Kingsguard is Walter Went's brother. According to the World of Ice and Fire, it is stated that Lord Walter announced the tourney of Harrenhal in 280 AC after a visit from his brother Oswell. This is also repeated in Barristan Selmy's account in A Dance with Dragons. Just to summarize, the Maesters and Barristan theorized that Rhaegar Targaryen had arranged the tourney through Sir Oswell and Lord Walter as a ruse to call a great council of lords to decide what to do about his mentally ill, despotic father, and that he secretly bankrolled the whole event as the Wents were not known to have the wealth necessary at the time. And the only reason King Eris attended the tourney after being a paranoid shut-in for so many years was because Varys had persuaded him that his crown prince was plotting against him. So if it was a great council conspiracy, the cover was blown before it even got started. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole in this episode, but it is worth noting that Oswald Went is also among the Kingsguard who were left to defend the Tower of Joy. So it's not a stretch of the imagination that he was a close and trusted servant of Rhaegar's. Indeed. The wiki says that Oswald was among those close companions that Rhaegar took with him as he headed out to find and abscond with Lyanna Stark. I personally could not verify that in the world book. Occasionally, I find things on the wiki that are either unsighted or the citation seems a little off. So that's why I double checked. None of those close companions are named specifically, but without a doubt, Rhaegar's best friend, Sir Arthur Dane, was there. It, would, it stands to reason that Oswald Went would be there too if we know he was at the Tower of Joy with Arthur Dane and Gerald Hightower. Steering back on track just a little, Catelyn Tolley may have been quite removed from the events at Harrenhal, but she was also directly affected by them. Her betrothed, Brandon, was killed by Rhaegar's father for trying to rescue his sister. Then she ended up marrying Ned as a condition of her father's support. Yet, her mother's family may have secretly had a very heavy hand in trying to facilitate this alleged Great Council, and may have also been in league with Rhaegar for the alleged kidnapping of Lyanna. Lyanna did disappear less than 10 leagues from Harrenhal itself, which would make things kind of helpful if the Wents could have arranged a meeting point somewhere on their lands that Sir Oswald would be able to guide the prince's party to. If Manissa were alive at this time to comment to her daughter about this whole thing, you know what? No, I'm not going to think about that today. We, we just we got to press on. Agreed. But let's have that discussion at some point. This is how we just decided things are going to be, guys. We're not doing the nice, concise essay structure laser focused on one single topic per episode. There are other podcasts for that. Our meta is a Willy Wonka boat ride. Hell fucking yes. The funny part is we actually have a really detailed script that we follow. We really do try to start scripting in an almost essay-like manner, but then all of a sudden we're blissfully skipping down detours and side trips that light up our neurons like a Christmas tree. Then we just dump it all out on a Google Doc and voila. We don't even know the way things are going to go until the script is done. Welcome to Neurodivergent Town. Population us.
should explain a lot. Anyway. I will say that last episode we did point out as one of the reasons why Brandon probably wasn't the one who dishonored Ashara at Harrenhal, that Rickard Stark probably had a lot riding on this betrothal between Brandon and Catelyn, a la the Southern ambitions theory. Hoster is a shrewd man to bargain with, as we can see from his later refusal to commit to the rebel cause until Ned committed to marrying Catelyn and the heirless John Aaron committed to marrying Lysa. In both cases, Hoster saw an opportunity he could leverage in exchange for his support that would increase his house's prestige and sphere of influence. After all, he could have just said no and they would have been shit out of luck. As a result of the kind of man Hoster Tully is, Rickard would be wise to instruct his heir not to do anything that would insult Hoster while he's a guest in the Riverlands, both at Riverrun and Harrenhal. The fact that Lord Hoster's extended family by marriage are the hosts of the tourney just puts a finer point on the importance for Brandon to behave during the tourney. If anyone is going to tattle on Brandon Stark behaving badly with another noblewoman in the royal family's entourage, no less, so close to the wedding day, it's Shella and Walter, and there is no evidence of that ever happening. Therefore, it is yet another piece of evidence that Brandon was not the dishonorer. <laughs> dishonorer. <laughs> Speaking of Lord Hoster and what kind of man he is, similarly to Manissa, little is known about Hoster's immediate family except for his brother, the famous blackfish Brendan Tully. We don't know who their parents are, if they had any other siblings, or much else about them, but we got George over here naming the Tully forebears after Muppets. Grover, Elmo, Kermit, and Oscar. Grade A Easter eggs over there. What we do get to learn a lot about, however, is Lord Hoster's contentious relationship with Brynden and how both a father and an uncle will come to influence Catelyn and her siblings. In A Feast for Crows, Jamie recalls a visit he made to Riverrun as a boy. During a feast when he was supposed to be getting to know Lysa Tolly. Remember, Hoster was hoping to make a match with Tywin Lannister between Lysa and Jamie. Mm-hmm. Jamie says that during the feast, he ignored Lysa and instead spent all of the dinner enthralled by the Blackfish, pressing him for more tales of his battles against foes like Malus the Monstrous and the Ebon Prince. Though he did also say Catelyn seemed to be more interesting of the two sisters, but she was already betrothed. I'm sure Hoster wasn't happy with his brother indulging Jamie and not steering the boy's attention back to Lysa. Probably not, though that was hardly the beginning of the tension between the brothers. The feud between Hoster and Brynden started after the War of the Ninepenny Kings, where Hoster sought to wed Brynden to Bethany Redwine of the Arbor. The Riverlands have always been vulnerable to attacks from lack of natural borders, so it makes sense to forge an alliance with a house known for having the largest fleet of ships in Westeros. Yes, but Brynden staunchly refused that match, as well as all other offers. George R. R. Martin has yet to reveal why Brendan was so adamantly against getting married, leading to fan speculation that he could be either gay, asexual, or was already in love with someone he couldn't marry. Or maybe he just enjoyed the bachelor soldier life and not being tied down to the responsibilities of a home and family. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be single by choice, though any headcanon that you like works, really. He's free real estate. Brendan Tully, gay ace badass warrior icon. Whatever the reason, nothing makes Hoster crazier than family members who don't live by the Tully words. Family, duty, honor. True. Brendan has always marched to the beat of his own drum. He chooses to go his own way in life and fiercely defends his decisions to do so. The brothers' quarreling leads to Hoster calling Brendan, quote, the black goat of the Tully flock. Brendan then responds by wearing the insult like a badge of honor, but with a personal twist. 
citing the Tolly sigil of a fish, he defiantly became known as the Blackfish. Contrary to Hoster's belief about what family ought to do, Brendan is saying that he is both a proud Tully, loyal to his family, and a rebel through and through. Those elements are not mutually exclusive. In this, we have a picture of two Tullys diametrically at odds with each other. One is a patriarch who is all about the family's interests over individual needs and desires. He represents family duty honor in the strictest sense of the words. Family as a house with a legacy and ambitions first. Your duty as an individual is to support the family in whatever capacity it requires. Doing that duty faithfully is a mark of one's honor. The other is an uncle that loves his family dearly, and he does serve them faithfully, just in his own way. Catelyn recalls the day the feud turned into a silent stalemate where both brothers ceased to speak to each other for many years. The war had not ended until the day she and Lysa had been wed. It was at their wedding feast that Brynden told his brother he was leaving River Run to serve Lysa and her new husband, the Lord of the Eyrie. Lord Hoster had not spoken his brother's name since from what Edmure told her in his infrequent letters. Nonetheless, during all those years of Catelyn's girlhood, it had been Brynden the Blackfish to whom Lord Hoster's children had run with their tears and their tails when father was too busy and mother too ill. Catelyn, Lysa, Edmure, and yes, even Peter Baelish, their father's ward, he had listened to them all patiently as he listened now, laughing at their triumphs and sympathizing with their childish misfortunes. Catelyn Six at Game of Thrones. Brynden has an endearing, close relationship to the children. He is the warm, understanding, trusted figure they confide in. He gives them individual time and attention when his brother was too busy or when Manissa was too ill. So, doting, sympathetic Uncle Brynden is sort of like foster father extraordinaire John Aaron to Ned and Robert. Hold up, let's back it up. We forgot to talk about the birth order of the kids. Together, Hosta and Manissa would come to have six children in total. Their two oldest, both boys, died in infancy. The next eldest surviving child was Catelyn, born in 264 or 65. Lysa was born two or three years after Catelyn, sometime between 266 and 268 AC. Edmure, the only surviving boy, was born between two and seven years after Lysa, putting him behind Catelyn by as many as 10 years. Manissa, in an attempt to birth another son, however, died in her sixth childbirth at least a year after Edmure was born. The infant son followed her shortly after. Her mother's death left Catelyn, who was between 10 and 12 and had already been named Hoster's heir for at least four years prior to Edmure's birth, to become the effective Lady of Riverrun. So she would be overseeing the day-to-day management of the household and acting as hostess to her father's guests. Politics is personal, and young Cat would be her father's right hand in that. We see this played out in a way in Sansa's feast chapters when Elaine Stone is in charge of the reception of the Lord's declarant for her <clears throat> father, Lord Peter Baelish, as well as her having a hand in organizing the tourney of the Winged Knights, which we will be seeing in Tiwal. Kat also has a responsibility to be strong for her younger siblings and to be the example. So in all of this, we can see that in the wake of her mother's death, Catelyn had to grow up and mature quickly, well before her age of majority. That uncomplaining, dutiful aspect of Catelyn's personality would have pleased Hoster greatly, which is probably why they got along so well and maintained the closest relationship out of all his kids. Catelyn's face was drawn as she started across the yard. I have always done my duty, she thought. Perhaps that was why her lord father had always cherished her best of all his children. Her two older brothers had both died in infancy, so she had been son as well as daughter to Lord Hoster until Edmure was born. 
Then her mother had died, and her father had told her that she must be the Lady of River Run now, and she had done that too. And when Lord Hoster promised her to Brandon Stark, she had thanked him for making her such a splendid match. I gave Brandon my favor to wear, and never comforted Peter once after he was wounded, nor bid him farewell when father sent him off. And when Brandon was murdered, and father told me I must wed his brother, I did so gladly, though I never saw Ned's face until our wedding day. I gave my maidenhood to this solemn stranger, and sent him off to his war and his king, and the woman who bore him his bastard, because I always did my duty. Catelyn 11, A Clash of Kings. As capable as Cat is... This also seems a little sad that she is leaned upon so heavily at such a young age. Katz's part of Hoster died with Minissa. It's implied she means whatever softness and joy Minissa brought out of him was now mostly gone, except for when she became whatever her father needed her to be. Hmm, that sounds like another father of Aeswath, albeit one that we know more about. Lord Shitbag Tywin Lannister. Contrasting with Tywin, however, Hoster was capable of showing love and making Cat feel loved. It's just that his rigid expectations for his children loom over everything. Lysa certainly didn't feel loved, and Edmure has never felt assured of his father's love or approval. They got some deep-seated issues from Hoster's parenting, to say the least. There are those that say Kat had it easier because she was the supposedly perfect daughter. Just because she was more accomplished wearing all those different hats doesn't mean there was no cost or detriment. Being shown love also means Kat is getting positive reinforcement for being so agreeable and uncomplaining. True. I mean, positive reinforcement of that mentality and behavior can really shape someone in their formative years. Kat is also feeling like it's her responsibility to manage her grieving father's happiness. Remember, Hoster buried three sons and his beloved wife. It seems as if every one of her actions is guided by making things as easy as possible on her father by not giving him any fuss or trouble. She's become his steadfast emotional support and the rock he can depend on for anything. In her own words, she's a son and a daughter, the lady of the house and heir to River Run, the replacement wife in the sense of being a helpmate and the good example to her younger siblings. That's all on the shoulders of one little girl. That family duty honor man, those words were really drilled into her head. Yeah. About her relationship to her younger siblings, her younger sister Lysa was a very emotionally fragile child who doesn't naturally possess Kat's resilience. She's more flighty and impulsive, but she's also highly sensitive, especially to criticism and rejection. Lysa needs the comfort and support of her older sister more than ever, since Hoster isn't an easy man to please. And Edmure was just a baby when their mother died. His eldest sister would have been the strongest female presence in his life, perhaps like a surrogate mother figure. With the track record of sons in the family, I'm sure, I'm sure a couple harrowing years went by before anyone could be confident Edmure would survive to inherit Riverrun. Of course, Catelyn felt like it was up to her to hold this family together and to be whatever it needed her to be, which is sad to think about, but at least she had Uncle Brendan. Right. She said Uncle Brendan was the trusted confidant the children went to for individual attention. And that's telling as well. As close as she is to Hoster, and as much as she feels cherished by him, she doesn't unload upon him any concerns or fears. As far as dad is concerned, she's fine. She's she's, she's fine. She's fine. (laughs) When dad tells you you're marrying someone, you smile and say thank you. You give your favor to the guy he picked and you break all contact with the foster brother you genuinely care about. 
you know, like a brother, brother, not like a Lannister twin kind of way, because you know, your angry dad would be upset at you even saying goodbye. Then when things go sideways, you marry the next person dad picks and you lose your virginity to a stranger who seems cold and distant. Bear his child while he, as far as you know, fathered the bastard he'll eventually put on full display for everyone to see. Of course, we'll unpack all that in part three. Even in her recollections, it's only in Catelyn's tone do we sense that she wasn't totally fine with always doing her duty. I don't think she regrets the sacrifices she made, and she loves her father deeply, but there's definitely some unspoken underlying melancholy and bitterness from always having to grin and bear it, and always having to stuff down her personal feelings. But we're definitely putting a pin in that idea. Yeah, when it comes to her dad, it's like she can't regard her feelings and wishes with any kind of importance or acknowledgement. There's no room for that when her focus is on her duty and making her father happy. So that's young Catelyn being amazing, even though she didn't have to be that amazing just to be Hoster's daughter. Now it's time for us to talk about her relationship with Peter Baelish. Cat loved him dearly like a brother, a close relationship he could have maintained and cherished forever if that kind of love held any value to him. Except then he ruined her whole life 15 years later because he projected a bunch of entitled fantasies on her that she was never going to fulfill, so he had to destroy her entire family and trap her daughter as her replacement. You know, like an incel piece of shit would do. And that's not even counting all the corruption, the murders, the human trafficking, the abuse of children, and inciting a war that cost thousands of lives. The end. Well, thanks for listening, guys. See you next episode. Follow us on our socials. Roll the outro music. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Hold on. I mean, you're not wrong, Blue, but I think we should unpack that a little bit in a lot more detail. Sure. We can do that, too. I'm not arguing that you didn't sum everything up nicely there, but we are doing a podcast about analyzing relationships. So don't you think we should kind of do that? By all means, then, let us delve deeper. As a true crime fan, I am all for discussing dangerous perverts. It's very relaxing. Oddly, it is. So we have Peter's unnamed father, the second Lord Baelish, whose seat is a modest tower house on the smallest peninsula of the Fingers, who befriended Lord Hoster Tolly while fighting alongside him during the War of the Ninepenny Kings. Hoster held Peter's father in such high esteem that he agreed to take his young son to ward at Riverrun sometime after the war. This would be a huge honor for such a small, upstart house only four generations old to be fostered by a high lord. It is not clear when exactly the fostering started, but the children were all pretty young. After all, Peter was born in 268, which makes him about three or four years younger than Catalin. As Catalin recalls in her earliest memories of them together, She remembered the god's wood, drooping branches heavy with moisture, and the sound of her brother's laughter as he chased her through the piles of damp leaves. She remembered making mud pies with Lysa, the weight of them, the mud slick and brown between her fingers. And they had served them to Littlefinger, giggling, and he'd eaten so much mud he was sick for a week. How young they all had been. Catelyn Five, A Game of Thrones. Just to point out real quick, that's a parallel between Arya and her mother, where they both enjoyed playing in the mud and getting dirty, and it makes my heart burst with just rainbows. Anyways, okay, continue. It probably didn't take that long for Peter to fall hard for Catelyn. It's easy to see why. Catelyn was a very conventionally pretty girl. By Jamie's account, she stood out as interesting and outgoing, but she's also sweet and close with her siblings. Catelyn probably thought Peter's crush was harmless and touching, though she absolutely did not reciprocate any romantic feelings. And, of course, most childhood crushes are perfectly normal, wholesome, and pure. 
let's just say this one was normal, wholesome, and pure until it wasn't. There was one incident where Catelyn recalls that Peter could be a sly one, pushing some boundaries at a very young age. As she stood there, all the memories came flooding back to her. Her father had taught her to ride amongst these trees, and that was the elm that Edmure had fallen from when he broke his arm. And over there, beneath that bower, she and Lysa had played at kissing with Peter. She had not thought of that in years, how young they had all been. She, no older than Sansa, Lysa younger than Arya, and Peter younger still, yet eager. The girls had traded him between them, serious and giggling by turns. It came back to her so vividly she could almost feel his sweaty fingers on her shoulders and the taste of mint on his breath. There was always mint growing in the godswood, and Peter had liked to chew it. He had been such a bold little boy, always in trouble. He tried to put his tongue in my mouth, Catelyn had confessed to her sister afterwards when they were alone. He did with me too, Lysa had whispered, shy and breathless. I liked it. Catelyn 11, A Game of Thrones. Of course, kids are curious and play games like that to dip their toes into more grown-up things like kissing. The sisters were at that preteen age where the question of betrothals is soon going to be tossed around if it hadn't been already. We already know that Hoster betrothed Catelyn at 12 and had designs on Jamie Lannister for Lysa. Adult life isn't that many years away at this stage in their lives. So it's understandable why the sisters would be experimenting a little bit with a close, trusted friend. And Peter, being a little bit younger, provided an added layer of security to that exploration, as an older boy would probably feel less safe and more intimidating because the expectations from them would be different. It's very typical of girls in their age group to fantasize in stages of comfort level. For example, Sansa's very chaste attraction to Joffrey in early A Game of Thrones, who is still very boyish in appearance and elegantly mannered, well, you know at first. She doesn't fantasize about being physically intimate with him. It's more about them spending time together and him treating her like she's special. Then, as she grows, that attraction evolves into having a crush on Loras Tyrell, who is closer to manhood, but he's still well within the confines of safety with his soft-featured teen idol look and the impeccable courtesy of a nobleman coupled with her ideals of knighthood. The farthest Sansa's fantasies extend to is imagining herself kissing him with a bare amount of touching. There's no mention of him doing anything to her. She's the giver, not the receiver, so whatever happens is strictly under her control. He keeps his hands to himself, or just where she wants him to be. Thus, Laura serves as a bridge to being ready for more mature adult relationships later on. If it's hard to conceptualize in that example, just think of all of the very non-threatening boy bands that preteen girls go crazy for in our world. It's all about the kind of boy they can experience intimacy with, but where they can also feel totally unpressured to give more than they feel ready for. I'm sure Peter must have seemed like a very safe kind of boy to an 11-year-old-ish cat because he's intentionally written to fit that bill of physically non-threatening. You would think, except even as slight a build and familiar as he is, the exact opposite happens. Kat obviously expected the experimentation to remain chaste and innocent. The confession to her sister in private that Peter had tried to put his tongue in her mouth implies she was taken off guard and that he pushed her past her comfortable limits. It was way too much, too fast and too soon, and she had to halt it before it went any farther. Unfortunately, that's an all-too-relatable experience for a lot of young girls. Just the description of the sweaty hands on our shoulders is so evocative of being felt up by some grabby little toad. Ugh. 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 
Ugh, ugh, <laughs> those moist, clammy hands. Somehow the vivid memory of his minty breath just makes it even worse. It was probably the only thing that kept her from puking in his mouth. But damn, I wish she really did, though. If he has to hold her by the shoulders, then he's really going for it and she can't easily pull away. That's it, guys. The only thing Kat ever did wrong in her entire life was not blowing chunks directly into Peter Baelish's mouth. Catelyn, you're doing great, sweetie. <sighs> if this were an isolated event, we would probably give Peter some benefit of the doubt because he's a kid of around eight and maybe didn't have the mental capacity to understand what an erotic kiss is or means. So sometimes kids mimic adult behavior they've seen, but they don't fully understand what they're doing. I don't think that's the case here, which is deeply disturbing, but it would be plausible that he didn't understand the inappropriateness. But that wasn't Peter's only inappropriate act towards Kat. His next one was arguably more aggressive because it actually seemed to have hurt and anger behind it. According to the World of Ice and Fire, there's a feast held at River Run to both announce Catelyn's betrothal to Brandon Stark and for Lord Hoster to settle a dispute between his vassals, Lords Bracken and Blackwood. This, of course, was a betrothal Catelyn was satisfied with and had resolved to commit herself to for her father's sake, because that's who the real Catelyn is. And later, she'll be even more pleased with the match when Brandon, an absolute hottie with the wild wolf personality, starts to make visits to River Run. There's definitely worse matches out there. Of course, Peter was not pleased by the announcement. Not pleased at all. Nevertheless, during the feast, Kat danced with Peter, you know, the foster brother she loves and would like to share these happy tidings with. Except he takes this as an encouragement to press his romantic feelings on her by attempting to kiss her again. Here's the quote from Lysa's recollection of the event. Keep in mind she is quite unhinged and going off on Sansa at this time while she's describing the scene. Lysa descended from the high seat, her skirts swirling. Did you come with Lord Bracken and Lord Blackwood the time they visited to lay their feud before my father? Lord Bracken's singer played for us, and Catelyn danced six dances with Peter that night. Six, I counted. When the lords began to argue, my father took them up to his audience chambers. There was no one to stop us drinking. Edmure got drunk, young as he was, and Peter tried to kiss your mother, only she pushed him away. She laughed at him. He looked so wounded, I thought my heart would burst, and afterwards he drank until he passed out at the table. Uncle Brendan carried him up to bed before my father could find him like that. But you remember none of it, do you? She looked down angrily. Do you? Sansa 7, A Storm of Swords. <sighs> There's a lot going on here, mainly a staggering lack of adult supervision. So we can see the kissing game incident a year prior was not a one-off. He's persistent with his advances, even if he's still young, and it's not quite an established pattern yet. However, it's still an act of possessiveness in the face of her betrothal and her apparent contentment with the arrangement. So, little Wolfburn. Uh-huh. Did you know there are people out there in the fandom that think Cat was the bad guy in the scene. I've heard that. Now, why? Why would that be? Um, hmm. Let's see. Misogyny, Blue. Pure misogyny. Since Catelyn had to shut him down for trying to stick his tongue in her mouth before, I really don't see Catelyn ever experimenting with any kissing games with Peter again. She's aware of what his feelings are, and she's, and she's not actually trying to encourage anything other than brotherly affections. 
but some people still read her dancing six times with him as her leading him on or giving him false hope. Thus, her pushing him away and laughing at him was supposedly cruelly toying with his love for her by humiliating him. Oh, for fuck's sake, people. She's a child of 12 years old. 12. Not a temptress baiting him for her own amusement. That interpretation of what happened is coming from Lysa, who even at that point had her own obsession with Peter, who she thought was as pure as the driven snow and could do no wrong. Lysa's jealousy and resentment over her sister being the object of his desire is causing her to paint Catelyn as a villain here. In her view, she's the only one who truly cared about Peter's feelings and saw his greatness early on. Catelyn is just a total bitch that cruelly humiliated this really sweet, innocent boy who worshipped the ground that she walked on. Lysa is making the six dances out to be highly suggestive of Catelyn being a tease, that she was setting Peter up to think that she wanted him to kiss her, only to reject him. But in her own words, she says most of the adults left the room to discuss their disputes. So there are only the children left in the room with maybe some servants and the singer attending them. If the music is still going and Edmure is already three sheets to the wind, how many other dance partner options does Catelyn have? The girl just wants to dance because she's having a good time. How is this a crime? Exactly. Lysa desperately wants to believe that Peter's heart was totally smashed to pieces at that moment so he would finally get over Catelyn and be receptive to her romantic feelings. It's not like Lysa would have been happier if Catelyn had reciprocated Peter's feelings and kissed him back. What other ways could Catelyn have handled the situation that would have pleased Lysa? She can't win no matter what she does because Lysa is always going to place herself as Peter's number one stan. And of course, we'll get into that a lot farther when we do our episode on John Aaron and Lysa's marriage because Lysa's fucked up love for Littlefinger turns out to be quite a big deal for the entire realm. (laughs) Definitely, maybe, possibly, who knows. We said before that Catelyn had to mature quickly after her mother's death and take on adult responsibilities, but that doesn't mean she wasn't still a child in lots of ways. Yeah, Catelyn also recalls a trip to Seaguard that she, Lysa, and Peter accompanied Hoster on. This is Catelyn speaking to her son, Rob. Old Stones, all this small folk called it when I was a girl, but no doubt it had some other name when it was still the Hall of Kings. She'd camped here once with her father on their way to Seaguard. Peter was with us, too. There's a song, he remembered, Jenny of Oldstones, with the flowers in her hair. We're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. She'd played at being Jenny that day, had even wound flowers in her hair, and Peter had pretended to be her prince of dragonflies. Catelyn could not have been more than 12. Peter, just a boy. Catelyn 5, A Storm of Swords. They are the same ages here as they were when her betrothal was announced, and she's still very much a child playing make-believe. It's not playing coy or flirtatious because they're pretending to be Jenny and the Prince of Dragonflies. It's literally because they're camped at Oldstones. It's no different from Arya wanting to go look for Rhaegar's rubies while they were camped near the Trident on the way to King's Landing. It's not Catelyn's fault that Peter was reading this scene or the six dances as a romantic invitation. She shut that down in the Godswood about a year before, which should have been the end of it. She was never rejecting Peter, though. She was rejecting them having a romantic relationship. And it's also not her fault. Peter cannot separate those two things. At her betrothal announcement, he responds by getting totally wasted and wallowing in self-pity like she did him wrong. 
I mean, he is allowed to feel disappointed that a crush did not reciprocate his feelings. That's okay. That's totally fine. What's not okay is acting like she is the bad guy that hurt him for not wanting a romantic relationship and for enforcing her personal boundaries. So Peter leans in, thus forcing himself on her, and Kat put her hands up to prevent him from coming any closer. Perhaps she added a little force to the action, but to me, it seems as though her push, quote unquote, was little more than a defensive reflex to get him to back off. But little Wolfbird, she laughed at him. She laughed at him. How is this not mean and cruel of her? How else are we to take this except as unnecessarily salting his wounds? The way I see it is she's laughing it off to give him an out of this awkward, embarrassing situation he put them both in. He tried to foist an inappropriate kiss on her again, this time in a more public view, though most of the adults were not there. He's upset at the reality of her engagement. There's a sense he is also not happy about her celebratory mood over it. So Peter tries to assert a romantic claim over her, which does infringe on her honor. It makes it look like there's something going on between them when there isn't at all. Else, why would he so boldly attempt to kiss her in front of the servants? By laughing, she's letting everyone know he's just kidding, guys. Like, haha, oh, Peter, you're so funny. That was super funny joke pretending to kiss me like that. She's actually being kind and gracious by giving him a way to save face and just respond with, yep, I was totally kidding. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah. Nowhere is she described as like clutching her stomach from laughing so hard while pointing at Peter like she was just trying to get the others to mock at him as well. It's not that kind of laugh. She was trying to de-escalate the situation and allow him to bow out gracefully. Except Peter goes and makes it apparent he was definitely not kidding by getting shit-faced and sulking. Peter ended up humiliating himself here. Whatever Kat did, she didn't take any actions to humiliate him. Think of Joffrey pouring wine on Tyrion's head. That is being humiliated by someone else. But that's not the situation here between Kat and her foster brother. Peter made a fool of himself at her engagement party. At that point, Uncle Brendan checks in on the kids, finally, and has to usher Peter to bed so Hoster doesn't find out about his ward making moves on his betrothed daughter. Okay, so, trigger warning, guys. I'm going to take a few seconds to talk about a sexual assault, so bear with me. Just to briefly summarize what happens next, this is the moment that Lysa goes to Peter's room and takes advantage of his inebriated state and rapes him. Just calling a spade a spade here, even if there's no concept in their world for a female assaulting a male. Peter is so drunk, he believes it's Catelyn that came to him and gave her virginity to him. Obviously, if he's so drunk, he doesn't even know it's Lysa, and she's neglecting to make that clear. There's no way this it can be interpreted as consensual. This whole plot point is even more fucked up because we're dealing with very young children of nine and 10 years old, respectively. Jesus fucking Christ, George. It does provide some context, though, as to why Peter might believe at this point that Catelyn did, in fact, have feelings for him. Not that it justifies the way Peter behaves in any way, but it's not totally cut and dry either. He's going to hang on to what he believes happened this night well into adulthood, but also completely ignore Catelyn's expressed feelings and wishes at all other times. Okay, we're done talking about the icky part. Moving on. We are not supposed to read Lysa's version of what happened that night as an accurate telling of the way Catelyn treated Peter. 
Far from it. Especially when we actually read Catelyn's point of view and there's not one instance of her mocking Peter or belittling his feelings in her private thoughts. If anything, she's quite charitable and respectful of what, in her mind, was an innocent, pure love that was, at worst, misguided and went too far occasionally. She chalks up these reckless follies to Peter just being a child himself. Surely, a normal, mature adult man with a hindsight of twenty twenty would look back on their past with more sense and clarity. Yes, if only we were dealing with a normal, mature adult man. What we're saying is Martin is smashing that nice guy underdog spurned by a beautiful, cool, rich girl that doesn't see his worth trope by having this interpretation of Catelyn's actions come from the mouths of Lysa and Littlefinger. Though they may be different in many ways, they both have issues with extreme possessiveness and are willing to go to depraved lengths to get what they want from other people. Their reaction to Catelyn dancing, laughing, and pushing Peter away is severely warped. The bottom line. Catelyn is not, I repeat, not responsible for what Peter does. She is a preteen girl. She is not a temptress or a manipulator, and she already let him know that after the kissing game went too far... She had no romantic interest in him and that she only loved him as a brother. Catelyn never rejected Peter himself. If anything, he was the one who rejected her because he couldn't have her like he wanted. Peter is an incel. Here, poor Quentin hit the nail on the head. Catelyn did nothing wrong by feeling the way she did and enforcing her boundaries. She did not make him the villain he would become. Full stop. Everything wrong with Peter was already forming in his personality. I wish we could say this was the end of young Peter's fuckery, but it doesn't end there. Four years later, just after the tourney of Harrenhal, Brandon visits River Run and the date of Brandon and Kat's wedding is set. And Peter, who is still in love with Kat, challenges Brandon to a duel. The stakes are set. Whoever wins shall wed Kat, right? Because that's how that totally works, right? (laughs) That is totally not how that works, Peter. Not even a little bit. First of all, A duel is not a legal loophole to undo a patrol that has been in place for a half a decade between two major houses involving the heir from one and the eldest daughter from the other. Second, House Baelish has only been landed for two of four generations in the Vale. In other words, over Hoster's dead body. And not even then would Catelyn marry Peter. And third, it was going to be a one-sided beatdown right from the jump. There is no way Peter could win against Brandon. Peter was, and is, short and slender and not martially talented. He's also 14, barely 15 at most. 20-year-old Brandon, on the other hand, has several inches and pounds over him. George said in December of 2000 that, quote, Brandon was the best of the Starks with a sword in hand and the best jouster as well, end quote. There could hardly be a more uneven match for a duel. Peter challenging Brandon to a duel is shoving his romantic interest in Catelyn right into her fiancé's face. There's no way she or anyone else can finesse him out of the situation. I have no doubt Brandon's reaction had to be, is this a fucking joke? Before getting really irritated. He is a hothead, and if it's an ass whooping this kid wants, well, it's an ass whooping he'll give him. Peter begs Catelyn for her favor to wear. I'm sure he heard the stories that a lady's favor could sort of magically tip the scales for him, the hero of his stories, to defeat a giant. Above all, he wants a sign that she really wants him. The staging of the duel has all of the idealism of the songs where the duel could save his lady love for being forced to marry this uncivilized northern brute. Mm Mm-hmm. Yum. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm not entirely certain this indicates Peter at the time possessed a childlike, innocent belief in the songs before his extreme cynicism took over. Yeah, I mean, it has the trappings of the songs, but I don't think he has the innocence and heartfelt sincerity if you look at everything leading up to this in the years prior. It's still very aggressive and possessive. A couple of years after the betrothal announcement, he's still steamrolling over Catelyn's wishes and feelings. That's even if he honestly believes she came to him and they had sex that one time. He refuses to acknowledge that even if she wasn't marrying Brandon, she definitely isn't going to marry him. It's like she's never a person with a will of her own. She's just the maiden in his story and he deserves to win her in the end because that's how he cast her. Yeah, there's naivete and recklessness out of desperation due to the imminent nuptials. She's soon going to be Brandon's wife, so it feels more about Peter's loss of control over Kat and about torpedoing this wedding so another guy can't have her. Another way of looking at it is that he wants to use the symbol of wearing Catelyn's favor to make her look like they had or have a thing in front of Brandon. It's implying something about her honor as a maiden going into her marriage. It's low-key scandalizing her, even if it's not going as far as to say, I boned your girl, bro. Think of the uproar Rhaegar giving Lyanna the Queen of Love and Beauty crown caused. Yeah, while it's not as extreme as that, it's still a romantically charged symbol. They aren't given out casually. And really, that's the only card he has to play against Brandon. He can't win martially. He can't win by birth or status or money. But he can subtly imply she hasn't saved herself completely for her betrothal all this time. That her virtue isn't 100% spotless. And maybe the intent here isn't to actually win the duel itself, but to blow up her engagement. Fortunately, Catelyn, being sensible, gives her favor to her betrothed instead. Why? For one, she's Hoster's daughter and she's committed to this marriage because family duty honor. And two, she's not going to add any fuel to Peter's already out of control feelings. Thankfully, Brandon doesn't seem to buy that Catelyn feels anything more than sisterly affection for her foster brother. Nevertheless, the duel is on. This is hardly a worthy contest for Brandon, but the kid is insistent on throwing down. Peter shows up for the duel, wearing a helm, mail, and breastplate. Brandon, in turn, strips off most of his armor just to make it a fair fight, if that's even possible. Kat, who is also soft-hearted, begs Brandon not to kill Peter. He is only a foolish boy, but I have loved him like a brother. It would grieve me to see him die. And her betrothed looked at her with the cool gray eyes of a Stark and promised to spare the boy who loved her. Catelyn Seven at Game of Thrones. And then they duel. That fight was over almost as soon as it began. Brandon was a man grown, and he drove Littlefinger all the way across the bailey and down the water stair, raining steel on him with every step, until the boy was staggering and bleeding from a dozen wounds. Yield, he called more than once, but Peter would only shake his head and fight on grimly. When the river was lapping at their ankles, Brandon finally ended it with a brutal backhand cut that bit through Peter's rings and leather into the soft flesh below his ribs, so deep that Catelyn was certain the wound was mortal. He looked at her as he fell and murmured, Cat, as the bright blood came flowing out between his mailed fingers. She thought she had forgotten that. Catelyn Seven, A Game of Thrones. We see that Brandon is trying really, really hard to keep his promise to Catelyn to not kill this scrawny little kid. The wounds he inflicts are fairly superficial, so we know he's holding back as he is a great swordsman. 
In doing so, Brandon is giving Peter multiple chances to call off the senseless fight, but Peter refuses to yield. Brandon's final strike is pretty severe, but again, we don't think that it would have ever been lethal unless it later got infected. He seemed to have calculated the backhand cut to meet an area of abdominal fat under another protective layer of mail and leather, so it's a mitigated blow that is unlikely to penetrate to any vital organs. And of course, it's going to hurt like a motherfucker and would leave Peter with a nasty-ass scar. Not that this was a victory to be proud of, but it does seem like Brandon was fed up and needed to force Peter to stay down for his own good. It was a sharp lesson. I know some people take issue with the idea that, oh, this character, quote, needs to be taught a lesson, and then something really violent and terrible happens to them. But honestly, he fucked around and found out, okay? Peter was just in the wrong and brought this situation on himself. The fact that Catelyn had to put the image of Peter looking at her while he's gushing blood out of her mind for so long suggests that she was deeply affected by seeing Peter hurt. She really feared for his life and lamented that things got to this point, but she certainly doesn't fault Brandon. Unfortunately for many, many, many characters who we all love and hold dear, Peter ends up fully recovering. Spoiler alert! Hoster, who was very pissed about this stunt, his ward pulled, grants Peter time to recover in Riverrun only until he's deemed healed enough to travel, which was roughly about a fortnight. Then Hoster sends him back home to the Fingers in disgrace. Edmure, who had dutifully served as Brandon's squire during the duel, tried to visit Peter at his bedside, but Peter refused to see him. So he feels betrayed by Edmure, too, for supposedly taking Brandon's side over his, but again... Edmure is Hoster's son, what else could he do? Catelyn would not and probably could not see him. As we said before, she did not say goodbye to him either when he finally left River Run, something she finds regrettable that they had to part ways like that. Lysa, however, makes a visit. Yes, she does, but we need to save most of that discussion for another episode. We do, but briefly stated... We know that this is the second time Lysa comes to Peter's bedchamber for sex. Peter is aware that it's her this time, but he thinks it's the first time for them together. So Peter goes home believing that he has deflowered both the Tolly sisters. But many years later, he will especially brag about having Catelyn first to anyone at the royal court who will listen, according to both Jamie and Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, of course he would drag her reputation through the mud, which is something you totally do when you love someone and cherish the intimacy you had with them. You make her a conquest and slut shame her. Totally. Absolutely. It really gets the girls to come, like, fall in love with you. <laughs> Anyways, Peter is, for the most part, thankfully, out of the picture and out of Kat's life for roughly the next 15 or so odd years. From here on out, events begin to merge with what we covered last episode with the beginnings of Robert's Rebellion from Ned's side of things. With Peter Baelish and the duel incident behind them, Brandon rides north to meet Lord Rickard Stark on his way south to Riverrun to see his heir married. Catelyn recalls that he bid her farewell and vowed upon his return they would wed. But before he can meet his father, Brandon receives word of his sister's alleged kidnapping. Just to recap, he turns an about face and races down to King's Landing. He challenges Rhaegar to a fight, not knowing that neither the prince nor Lyanna are in the Red Keep. Eris, hearing the challenge as a death threat, arrests Brandon. Rickard arrives shortly behind him to argue for his son and daughter's release, but the Mad King arrests the Lord of Winterfell as well. We've already covered the gruesome and tragic ending for Rickard and my boy Brandon, 
One roasted alive in his full suit of armor over a pit of fire, while the other strangled himself to death trying to reach a sword in order to save his father. Both rough, rough endings. Yeah. From Catelyn's side of things, she remembers her father raging when he learns about Brandon taking off instead of coming straight back to River Run. He was on his way to River Run when, strange, how telling it still made her throat grow tight after all these years. When he heard about Lyanna and went to King's Landing instead, it was a rash thing to do. She remembered how her own father had raged when the news had been brought to River Run. The gallant fool was what he had called Brandon. Catelyn 7, A Clash of Kings. Hoster really hates it anytime anyone goes off his script. I mean, Hoster isn't wrong that going down to King's Landing to angrily threaten the crown prince like that is ill-advised, considering who the king is. And he's not calling Brandon's reasons unjust. After all, he's a gallant fool, but he's thrown a monkey wrench into the wedding plans and left his daughter hanging. Callan doesn't really add much except to agree that it was rash, but her throat tightening suggests she still gets a little choked up thinking about Brandon's murder. It does seem like Catelyn had, at the very least, started to care for Brandon as they got acquainted during his visits. Not to jump too far ahead here, but we can glean how Catelyn probably felt about Brandon from her initial impression of Ned and how she compared the two brothers. She remembered her own childish disappointment the first time she had laid eyes on Eddard Stark. She had pictured him as a younger version of his brother, Brandon, but that was wrong. Ned was shorter and plainer face, and so somber. He spoke courteously enough, but beneath the words, she sensed a coolness that was all at odds with Brandon, whose mirths had been as wild as his rages. Even when he took her maidenhood, their love had more duty to it than of passion. Catelyn five, A Storm Swords Right away, we can see Catelyn was physically attracted to Brandon, and she seems to have liked Brandon's passionate nature, the way Brandon would express himself, whether it was raging at something he disliked or being jovial and finding joy in things he liked. It probably made him easy to warm up to. He's open and forthcoming, where Ned was so closed off and non-communicative that it was a major letdown for her. Yeah, she was hoping Ned would be like Brandon because she really liked Brandon. And... Heart cannon alert, they could have potentially exchanged letters during that time. Communication, after all, was happening between the two houses. So why not have a little chat with the man or woman you're going to marry? I'm just saying, it's possible. It's totally possible. But we do know that Kat was spending time with Brandon when he came for the wedding date announcement after the tourney of Hall. We can tell she's definitely smitten with Brandon at this point because of the way she talks about her actual wedding night. It wasn't the passionate lovemaking she expected to have or wanted to have with Brandon had they wed. All of this implies she felt some real chemistry with Brandon and had hopes that this marriage would be more than just an arrangement between their fathers. Right. That does speak to Catelyn's character, that yes, she was committed to this match out of family duty honor, first and foremost. But she also hoped to find some personal happiness and fulfillment, too. And why not? Hoster and Minissa loved each other. That kind of marriage was role modeled for her, like she and Ned had for Sansa. While they were really just starting to get to know one another from his visits, Catelyn seemed ready to open her heart to Brandon, if she hadn't already. There's a small quote from Catelyn in A Storm of Swords when Jane Westerling has come to her asking for some marital advice concerning Rob. 
And Catelyn thinks about who she would turn to at a time like this and the people she has lost. She says, Lord Hoster was gone or near enough. Her net as well. Bran and Rickon too. And mother and Brandon so long ago. Only Rob remained to her. Rob and the fading hope of her daughters. So Brandon is included among the loved ones she's grieved for, even though they're even though their courtship was brief and ended horribly a long time ago, she has made a permanent space in her heart for him, along with everyone else she loved. It doesn't have to mean she was completely in love with him at the time, but he was probably close to being her first love had their time together not been abruptly cut short. We talked about last episode how we feel like it was probably true that Brandon did have feelings for Barbara Dustin, or Babs as we like to call her. That relationship was very hot and sexual, but we also don't think it was devoid of genuine feelings either. When Rickard announces his betrothal, Brandon breaks things off with Babs. It's hard to say for sure what Brandon felt for Catelyn during these visits, but it seems like he was warming up to her too. After all, he honors her plea to be merciful to Peter during the duel, whose behavior was way out of line. Arguably, he was ready to go a lot harder, but he doesn't because it would cause Catelyn pain. See that, Peter? Catelyn has feelings and Brandon respects them. And it's not said that he ever questions her about her relationship to Peter. Brandon seems to accept her word that she loves Peter like a brother and that there is no love triangle here to worry about. Which means they probably have a measure of established trust because he knows her character. It seems like they had the building blocks of a pretty decent marriage, even by real-world standards. There's hints of budding passion, intimacy, trust, and fidelity. But it was not to be. After word spreads of Brendan's death, Peter sends Kat a letter, presumably because she is now, quote, free, at least in his mind. He wrote to me at River Red after Brendan was killed, but I burned the letter on red. By then I knew that Ned would marry me in his brother's place. Catelyn for A Game of Thrones. The fact that Catelyn burns the letter unopened and unread says a lot about her state of mind. She's grieving Brandon's loss and already knows she's now promised to Ned, who is a complete stranger to her. I don't think she needs to open the letter to have a pretty good idea of what it says. I think she's just emotionally exhausted by the turn of events and just doesn't have the energy to deal with another round of Peter's romantic overtures. Aside from what Hoster would say, I also don't think that she would even know how to pen a response. Catelyn certainly doesn't want to intentionally hurt him, but her gentle but clear rebuffs over the years haven't exactly cooled his feelings either. This isn't just a letter. It's emotional intimacy poured out on paper, and that in and of itself is a problem because Peter would have always interpreted a response of any kind as having a chance of eventually wearing her down and convincing her to choose him, as if she could, even if she wanted to. So to her, it's just kinder and in everyone's best interest to break all contact and let those feelings die, as a reasonable person would expect they would. Yeah, Catelyn is not the 12-year-old at her engagement feast anymore. She's a grown woman of 18 at this point. She has the wisdom to understand that trying to get back to a cherished sibling-type relationship like they used to have as little kids isn't going to be possible anymore. He's just pushed it too far. But what if Kat had read that letter? Maybe she wouldn't have found just the words of a foolish young boy in love still pleading to be together with her one day. What if more of Littlefinger was revealed in that letter? 
like like things that would alarm her to the darker sides of Peter's character. For instance, making disparaging remarks about Brandon or rejoicing in his death or blaming everyone else but himself for being kicked out of River Run or dropping that he thinks she lost her virginity to him at 12. That's a lot of potential yikes that could have been in that letter that would have screamed, this is so beyond a misguided childhood crush. And the contents of the letter could have potentially changed a lot in A Game of Thrones because Catelyn might not have been so trusting of Peter's word regarding the cat's paw dagger. She might not have trusted anything he said at all. Maybe. Not saying she did the wrong thing by not reading the letter. Just because we can sit here and analyze all these incidents as a parade of red flags, it's still understandable why she would expect that he would have matured as a fully grown man of 30. She's not holding the shit he pulled at nine and then again at 14 against him. She even defends him in the present story when it comes to that love. She says to Tyrion, Peter Baelish loved me once. He was only a boy. His passion was a tragedy for us all, but it was real and pure and nothing to be made mock of. He wanted my hand. That is the truth of the matter. Tyrion for A Game of Thrones. It's still understandable why she would believe his account of the cat's paw dagger in A Game of Thrones. Yeah, their relationship was not fraught with all of this problematic shit happening every other day. If that were true, Hoster would have ended the wardship long before Brandon got there. A good 80 to 90% of all those years probably made for really pleasant memories. Of course, that is going to outweigh the few unpleasant occasions in Catelyn's mind. Yeah, normal people get over unrequited childhood crushes, usually while still in childhood. And they certainly don't nurse a desire to destroy that person's entire life over it well into adulthood. Catelyn has no inkling of how deep Peter's hate for her runs because the very idea that he would hate her at all is so completely bonkers and therefore unimaginable to Catelyn. So no, she's not stupid or to blame for trusting Littlefinger and A Game of Thrones. Agree. Catelyn did nothing wrong. Okay, I think we're done talking about incels. Thank God. Wait, 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 wait. Does this mean that now we are finally and actually at the point where mom and dad get together? Yes, we are. So, if you recall from the last episode, Lord Eddard Stark had escaped the Vale and gone north to call his banners and head south again through the Riverlands. There, he joined his forces to Hoster Tully's, and together they marched on Stony Sep to aid Robert Baratheon, who was under siege from John Connington. After the rebel victory that was the Battle of the Bells, Dad returns to Riverrun to marry Mom. Hoster, being the hard bargainer that he is, refused to commit to the rebel cause without a Lord of Winterfell agreeing to wed his daughter. That was the price of those much-needed swords. And while he was at it, Hoster took the opportunity to marry Lysa off to the heirless John Aaron. Both couples married in a double ceremony in Riverrun Sept. So that's a strong alliance of three adjoining realms that are now all in-laws with each other. I think with the betrothal to Brandon, there was time and space for Hoster to make a match that would not only suit his ambitions for House Tolly, but also find one that would be agreeable to Catelyn. We can even see that with his hopes to wed Lysa to Jamie Lannister. But Hoster was not happy with Jamie joining the Kingsguard. Then, literally, in the final days leading up to Brandon and Catelyn's wedding, the groom takes off to pick a fight with the Targaryens and winds up dead. And then there's a little situation with Lysa's out-of-wedlock pregnancy, which we'll get into later. Unfortunately for his daughters, I think Hoster's done fucking around and is using the urgency of the war to get Catelyn and Lysa wedded and bedded ASAP. 
So their wedding day isn't really about the brides at all. It's about the price of their father's army, and they are the commodity the grooms are trading for it. In Lysa's case, it's even worse, because she's being traded on the promise of an heir because she's proven fertile, but also shamed and brought low for that fact. Plus, John Aaron is roughly 63, and Lysa is around 15. Ugh, yeah. That was probably quite a stone-cold sober atmosphere in that sept. <laughs> in the case of Brandon... Catelyn at least had time and opportunities to get to know him and most likely grow to like him. However, with Ned, Catelyn met him for the first time when he arrived at River Run to marry her. Essentially, Cat was living married at first sight and 90-day fiancé life combined. I'm sure it was quite daunting, even for a young woman who was resolved to do her duty. However, instead of the younger version of Brandon, she found Ned was shorter and plainer of face, polite enough, but also solemn and standoffish. Of course, Ned is in the midst of his grief, but I'm sure Catelyn's anxiety was up not knowing what kind of man she is being given to. Nevertheless, they have a traditional wedding night complete with the bedding ceremony. Surely an awkward public spectacle will help them get in the mood. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> On Catelyn's own wedding night, Jory Cassell had torn her gown in his haste to get her out of it, and drunken Desmond Grell kept apologizing for every body joke, only to make another. When Lord Dustin had beheld her naked, he told Ned that her breasts were enough to make him wish he'd never been weaned. Catelyn Seven, A Storm of Swords. I wonder what the women stripping Ned were saying about him. Lord Eddard, what a great big... Frowny face you have there? Question mark? <laughs> to be fair, Ned is a naturally more reserved person, so the betting couldn't have been easy for him either. Plus, we know he was so shy with the beautiful Ashara Dane that he needed his brother to ask her to dance on his behalf. He was probably about to have a stroke seeing an absolute goddess like Catelyn in all her naked glory. I mean, it's canon. Her tits are legendary. No mere mortal could withstand their power. Ed Cannon accepted. <laughs> And then, mom and dad fuck. And while Catelyn doesn't say it was horrible or even unpleasant, she found it to be more dutiful than passionate. They haven't been able to really break the ice conversationally before they're shoved into a bedroom naked together, so it probably actually went better than she feared. A dutiful pair of newlyweds they were, dutifully getting it on several times over the next fortnight. Ned had lingered scarcely a fortnight with his new bride before he, too, had ridden off to war with promises on his lips. At least he had left her with more than words. He had given her a son. Nine moons had waxed and waned, and Rob had been born in Riverrun while his father still warred in the south. She had brought him forth in blood and pain, not knowing whether Ned would ever see him. Her son, he had been so small. Catelyn 10, A Game of Thrones. Dad sure knocks it out of the park but he's already left her to return to the battlefront before Catelyn can know she's even conceived. Of course, Catelyn and her sister will remain safely at Riverrun with Hoster during the war. We do get a small glimpse into that time, as the sisters really can't do much except hope those dutiful nights paid off in airs. She and her sister had been married on the same day and left in their father's care when their new husbands had ridden off to rejoin Robert's rebellion. Afterward, when their moon blood did not come at the accustomed time, Lysa had gushed happily of the son she was certain they carried. Your son will be heir to Winterfell and mine to the Eyrie. Oh, they'll be the best of friends, like your Ned and Lord Roberts. They'll be more brothers than cousins, truly. I just know it. She was so happy. But Lysa's blood had come not long after, and all the joy had gone out of her. Catelyn had always thought that Lysa had simply been a little late. 
but if she had been with child, Catelyn won a storm of swords. Yeah, as unhappy as Lysa must have felt with being married to an old man, we can see she took a lot of comfort in the prospect of motherhood. More importantly, she hoped to bond with her sister over their pregnancies and the cousins being as close as brothers. Despite Lysa's jealousy over Peter Baelish in the past, she's still quite close to Catelyn. At least they have each other to cope with the situation and they'll have the love of their children. Sadly, a double pregnancy was not to be. I don't think Catelyn is intentionally belittling Lysa's excitement over a late period. She didn't know or suspect that Lysa had lost a pregnancy until the present story. And then Catelyn carries to full term and delivers a healthy male heir. Which, if you're a noblewoman, you get a big gold star for that one. Yep. And now Catelyn's parent success in her main job as a woman is highlighting Lysa's quote-unquote failure. Lysa's reaction to holding Rob for the first time was to break down into tears and immediately hand him back. Infertility issues can be extremely painful, and it is hard to find joy in other people's babies when you really want one, too. Yeah, I don't think Lysa has bitterness towards Catelyn's fertility yet, but this will probably be one moment in their history that Lysa will look back on that will feed her resentment later. Something I really wonder about is if Ned even knew about Catelyn's pregnancy until after the war was won. What do you mean? Well, think about where Catelyn sits among the rebel leaders. A, she's Hoster Tolly's daughter. B, her husband is Ned Stark, who ranks just under Robert Baratheon in the leadership structure. C, Northern and Riverland armies are key to the rebellion. And D, now she's pregnant, and soon to give birth to an heir the North and the Riverlands might still rally behind should Ned fall in battle. What I'm saying here is that Catelyn would be a phenomenal hostage for the Loyalists to acquire. I could see that happening if the Loyalists captured Riverrun. There's also Lysa Aaron there as well, but she hasn't borne John an heir. Exactly. We know that Hoster was busy rooting out Targaryen supporters in the Riverlands during this time. And there were several who posed a decent threat. Houses Derry, Goodbrooks, Mouton, and Rygers stayed loyal to the Targaryens. And Hoster was absolutely brutal in his tasks. He put one of House Goodbrooks' villages to the sword, which means he was slaughtering civilians. Yeah, Hoster can be a really hard, ruthless man on the battlefield and with Lysa, so there was at least a real present threat to Riverrun itself. I'm not saying that it would be easy, but capturing Riverrun and thus taking hostages would have been a devastating blow to the rebel cause. True, and Cat was probably a target to acquire that could possibly leverage negotiations for a surrender from Ned. However, you're saying this threat would be enough to keep Catelyn's pregnancy a secret, even from Ned while the war is going on? I mean, he wedded and bedded her, so there's always a possibility that she was with child. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But I don't doubt that Ned rode away from Riverrun knowing this, and probably even hoping for such an outcome. I don't think, however, that once the pregnancy was confirmed, notice was sent to him on the battlefield. We have at least four mentions in the series proper of ravens being shot down out of the sky with arrows, not only to intercept enemy communications, but also to prevent the messages from reaching their destinations. Okay. Therefore, it stands to reason that Hoster probably did not send word confirming Catelyn's condition to Ned should that information fall into Loyalist hands, because Loyalists were crawling all over the Riverlands. Therefore, I had canon that Hoster intentionally kept Ned in the dark about the pregnancy because not only was Cat his favorite, but minimizing the knowledge of the child and the future king in the North would keep things safer for everyone. 
Silence is safety. Oh, silence is safety for sure. But let me throw a little quote at you. Remember when Robert was trying to bond with Ned over the women they slept with and Robert asked Ned about his Ned's mouth tightened in anger. Leave it be, Robert, for the love you say you bear me. I dishonored myself and I dishonored Catelyn in the sight of gods and men. Gods have mercy, you scarcely knew Catelyn. I had taken her to wife. She was carrying my child. Eddard to a Game of Thrones. That seems to imply he did know at the time Catelyn was pregnant during the period that he was supposedly unfaithful, doesn't it? You could read it that way for sure. But you could also read it as Ned supplying that information after the fact. Obviously, he would know that his time in the South coincided with the nine months of Catelyn's pregnancy. Hindsight is twenty twenty, after all. Fair enough. Your headcanon is accepted. Fanfic writers, the Science Sisters hereby approve this headcanon as a plot point in your Ned and Cat fix. And just on another personal note, I really wish we had more of Catelyn talking about what it was like for her as a first-time expectant mother during a war where she has no idea if Rob will ever know his father. That would have been nice. I mean, having more information on Catelyn's time as being pregnant. Not that Rob would never know his father. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it's war. So more of the focus is going to be on writing about the battles, the sacking of King's Landing, the bloody end of the Targaryen regime, Lyanna and the Tower of Joy. That's nice. But what I really need is a line about Uncle Brendan cooing over baby Rob. That's what fanfic is for, little Wolford. (laughs) Touche. So we are now in mid to late 283. The war is essentially over with the Sack of King's Landing. However, Ned is still in the south, lifting the siege on Storm's End. Then he goes to the Tower of Joy, where Lyanna dies in the childbed, and then he makes a stop at Starfall. Finally, he heads home to Winterfell. And Catelyn departs River Run with Rob soon after. Fun fact. Maester Lewin was probably another transplant from River Run to Winterfell because Catelyn says Lewin delivered all of her babies. And we know Rob was born in River Run, so he probably came with Catelyn's entourage to replace Maester Wallace, Lord Rickard's maester, that Babs mentions. Interesting. Catelyn finally arrives at her new home in a foreign land with a foreign climate and foreign people and foreign gods, and it's not the warmest welcome either. Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) She's an outsider and a southerner on top of that. The only familiar faces she has are her son, her maester, and her husband, though she hasn't seen him in at least a year. But what's truly shocking for her to find is that her husband has established his bastard and wet nurse in residence for all of the world to see. Oh boy. And this is where we're stopping, guys. Sorry. Gotta wait till next episode. (laughs) So next episode will be the third and final installment of our Ned and Cat series. We'll be discussing their marriage from this point into the current story. Before we head into the end credits, there are a few things we wanted to bring up unrelated to today's episode. The lovely gentlemen over at Here Be Dragons invited us onto their YouTube channel to discuss safe social anxiety and the fandom experience in our very first live stream about a month ago. Without waxing even more on the topic, all we want to say here is that we both suffer from social anxiety and we get it. This stuff is not easy, and we are here for anyone who needs a friend. Apparently, it was a topic that resonated with a lot of fans like us because there were a decent amount of people watching. We'll definitely put the link in the show notes, so go check out that video on YouTube. Definitely, and while you're at it, we would highly recommend liking and subscribing to Hear Me Dragons. The crew over there, Stephen, John, and Nessie, are just the bestest. 
They cover so many different fandoms and have these really great live streams discussing all the things they're passionate about. We are really happy to call them our friends. Please check them out. And finally, our sincerest apologies for this episode taking two whole fucking months to put out. There is so much that we wanted to talk about concerning Catelyn that it really forced us to edit and re-edit and then do some more editing and then a little bit more after that to say what we needed to say. Then real life and having more work coming in for both of us happened. Really sorry, guys. We are still committed to our goal of having at least one episode out per month. You know, we're still new at this game, so maybe as time goes on, we'll get our process streamlined a little better. But we are so grateful if you came back for this episode. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It seriously means a lot to us. And we couldn't have done it without some very key figures. All the credits and thank yous in the world go to George R.R. Martin for our very favoritest thing in the whole world. Many, many thanks to Mandongo over on Tumblr for our art and logo. We love her so much. A standing ovation, please, for Mastagram, who composed and recorded our theme music. All things audio are made possible by our very own little wolfbird. That's right, and you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter under the same name. I'm Blue Lemons, and the links to my Tumblr and Twitter are in the show notes because they're all slightly different, and I enjoy being difficult and messy. (laughs) Please like us, comment, or review, and subscribe to us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to check out our website, thesilentsisterspodcast.com, where you can find links to whatever you may need from us. You can also follow us on Tumblr at The Silent Sisters Podcast or at Sister Silent on Twitter. If you'd like to contact us in a less public way, email us at thesilentsisterspodcast at gmail.com. And remember, silence is safety. And Kat never did anything wrong, ever. Except for that one time she didn't puke into Peter Vance's stupid face all. God, I can't. I'm trying.